The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now we are studying the book of Acts as a church family. We started earlier this year in part one of Acts. Um, The opening chapter of Acts, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is going to come and it's going to empower his people. And that the Holy Spirit, beginning in the city of Jerusalem, is going to send the people of God outwards from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And you can kind of organize the book of Acts around these three parts. The events that take place in Jerusalem, and then the transition into the events that take place in Judea and Samaria. In these early chapters, we've seen how the Spirit does indeed come, as Jesus promises. And it creates this community of Christians People who were gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation in fulfillment of God's purpose for the ages. And part two, the kingdom advances from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, again, just as Jesus promised. The gospel goes forward. The kingdom advances. The people of God swell and they increase. But like every good story, a villain emerges. A villain emerges. We know I, I know, I know in this room we've got a bunch of readers and we've got a bunch of movie nerds and TV show nerds. And what is essential in all of these books is a good villain, a good bad guy, right? Now, as we're reading through the book of Acts and we arrive at chapter 9, it's starting to shape up as if there's some kind of antagonist that's beginning to emerge. Some big bad, we might say, gathering his infinity stones, right? Like preparing to wage war against the good guys, like the antagonist introduced to, as, a, as, a, as a would-be foil to the church's advance, an antagonist that is introduced who is going to oppose the work of the apostles. Again, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. We're going to start in Acts 9, verse 1. Verse 1. But Saul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul reappears. Now, the last two times that we've seen Saul mentioned in the book of Acts is in chapter 7, verse 58, when we're told, almost in passing, that there's this guy named Saul who was present at Stephen's murder. Stephen was the first martyr, the, the first man whose life was taken for his commitment to Jesus. And we're told in Acts 7, verse 58, that Saul is there. But that's not all. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, uh, we're told that he's approving of Stephen's martyrdom, that he's ravaging the church, and that he's sending Christians to prison. We say that, that word ravaging is used elsewhere to describe like the action of a wild animal who's just going to town like on your, on your tent or on your, your bear bag, like, like ravaging. Saul's ravaging the church. He's approving of Stephen's martyrdom. And, and there's also this kind of interesting fact that his name is Saul. What do we know about the character Saul in the Bible? Now, I grew up in church, and I was always very confused at the character Saul, and I was confused for two reasons. The first was I thought for years that his name was Saul, S-A-W. So I was confused as to why you would name your child Saul, one. But second, I was always confused because there were two Saws in the Bible, and I always got confused. There was the, there was the Saul that was like after the Jesus time, but there was the Saul who was around in the King David time. Now, what do we know about the character of Saul who was around during King David's time? 
We know that he was anointed as king, but when he took things into his own hands, he sort of disqualified himself as the king. And then when David is anointed as king, Saul is jealous. And what does Saul do? He goes about in pursuit of King David, we might say, attempting to ravage King David. All right, so we get to this point in the narrative, and it's like, wait a second, there's another Saul. There's another Saul who's at play here. And it seems like this Saul is doing the same things that the other Saul did. This time, this Saul isn't just ravaging King David. He's attempting to, to, to ravage King David's son and, and the son of King David's people. So again, it sort of begins to look like we've got this villain who's emerging in Acts chapter 9. Verse 1, it says that he's still breathing out murderous threats. Like, imagine the intensity of that language. He's breathing out murderous threats. He is zealous for this. We're told that he volunteers to go pursue fugitives. In verse 2, he goes to the high priest, and he's asking for papers that would essentially grant him the power to go hunt down the Christians that are fleeing Jerusalem. And so we, we talked about it at the beginning of chapter 8, how once persecution is unleashed in Jerusalem, it kind of flings these Christians out to the surrounding regions. And Paul says, that's not going to do. I want to get permission from the local authorities to go hunt these people down and bring them back to Jerusalem and imprison them. So it, this is kind of ominous. This seems like, you know, the gospel's advancing, the kingdom's advancing, and then Saul appears. What's going to happen? We have the scattering, we have the Samaritans, we have the Ethiopian eunuch. Then things start to heat up. Is there going to be a confrontation? Saul wants to stamp out this movement. What is going to happen next? Now, it's worth noting here, kind of in passing, I did want to at least acknowledge this, that... Christianity is called here in verse 2. It's described as belonging to the way. It says in verse 2 that Paul is ask, excuse me, Saul is asking for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them down to Jerusalem. I was talking about those who are adherents to the Christian faith. But there's a lot that could be said here, but it's worth noting briefly that early Christians understood themselves to be not first adherents to a faith, but first, participants in a way of life. Like, if I were to ask you, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? How would you answer that question? Well, this passage gives us a small window into how the early Christians would have answered that question. To be a Christian was to follow Jesus in discipleship, to belong to the way of Jesus. This is something that we've said before in, the, in previous weeks is that Christianity is fundamentally about following Christ. And we've said it's almost like literally patterning our life after Jesus. To be a Christian is to live the life story of Jesus. It is, it is to belong to the way of Christ. It is to practice prayer. It is to practice knowing the scriptures. It is to practice generosity and hospitality and belonging. It is to practice holiness and humility and service. Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it seems that early Christians adopted that language to describe what it was that they were doing. They were following or they belonged to the way of Jesus. And so again, just in passing, it's at least, at least pausing for a second to ask ourselves this question. Is my life patterned after Jesus? Do I belong to the way of Christ? Does the way of Jesus have a grip on the whole of my life? Or is my faith is my commitment as a Christian sort of an accessory to my life? Is it kind of like a cultural thing that I feel obligated to do 
It's a thing that my family's always done, and I kind of feel this guilt that sort of drives me even being here. It's worth reflecting on for just a moment if we, if we think about ourselves in these same terms. All right, so what's going to take place? Saul is about to have some kind of confrontation with this advancing kingdom. Verse 3. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Saul is on his way to Damascus when he is suddenly blinded with a great light from the heavens. He stopped as one, or described as one who has stopped dead in his tracks. He falls to the ground and he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now again, it's probably not unintentional that his name is Saul. And it probably in this moment occurs to Saul, wait a second, my name is Saul. I've always kind of wondered why they would even use that name, because Saul is, is clearly a villain in those stories, and they, you know, maybe there's more to that, to that history than I know. But King Saul in the Old Testament is obviously a villain, the, the king of Israel originally, who goes about ravaging the fugitive King David. Now we have Saul hunting down King David's greater son, and surely in this moment, light bulbs begin to go off for Saul. Things start to click for him when he realizes, wait a second, Maybe I'm living up to my namesake. Maybe I am opposing the Messiah, our awaited son of David. We were building to a great confrontation, and here that confrontation is. Jesus himself confronting Saul. But don't miss what Jesus says here to Saul. He interrupts him on the road to Damascus, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus interrupts Saul with his grace, and he doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He doesn't say, why are, per- why are you persecuting the followers of the way? He doesn't say any of that. He says, why are you persecuting me? And what we see here in this passage, again, is something we can just hit on briefly in passing, is that Jesus so identifies with his people that he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The sufferings of Jesus' church from the lips of Jesus are the sufferings of Jesus himself. We are Jesus' body, right? And so that means our pain as the church is Jesus' pain. Jesus so identifies with his people that as Saul and others go about persecuting the church, Jesus feels that as his own body being afflicted. Verse 7. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now verse 7, we're told that these men who are, who are with Saul hear something taking place. They, they don't quite have a full grip on what's happening. They hear a voice. They don't hear the details of what's being said. And the point is, is that this is no private vision. You know, some might speculate that Paul maybe accidentally slipped in a hallucinogenic kind of on his way to, the, to Damascus, and so that's why he's having these visions. But what Luke wants to point out is that these things are verified by the people that are with Paul. So something takes place objectively. This is not just in Paul's head and in his own experience. Verse 9, it says that Saul is shocked. He's probably grief-stricken. It says that he's blind. The light is so intense that it blinds him. 
and that he neither eats nor drinks. One commentator pointed out that there's a kind of suggestion of death here. That Saul has been confronted with the light, and it's almost like he dies. And for three days, he doesn't eat, drink, or see anything. For three days, he's in darkness. Verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, a different Ananias from the one in chapter 5, to be sure, because that one is no longer with us at this point. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas, a different Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done at your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So the Lord appears to a disciple named Ananias. And he says that he's also appeared to Saul in a vision. And he tells Ananias, I want you to go lay hands on Saul. Ananias is understandably, he's shook about this. He's like, you know, wait a second. You, you mean Saul as in breathing murderous threats? Saul, you, you want me to go to this guy? And the Lord says, yes, I have appointed that this guy would be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, to suffer for my name's sake. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Ananias obeys the Lord. He goes to Saul. He lays hands on Saul. He affirms what's taken place. And then look at verse 18. It says that something like scales, like I just kind of imagine these scabs that have formed over his eyes. Something like scales fall from Saul's eyes. He sees again. It says that he rose and he was baptized. He receives the Spirit. He takes food and he's strengthened. Verse 20. And immediately... Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, it's not hard to see here a kind of suggestion of a death and resurrection that has taken place in Saul's life. Again, think about the way that he's described. He's, he's, he's blind. He's in darkness. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink for three days. That evokes a, another story in our minds, doesn't it? The story of Jesus, who was buried for three days. And then we're told that he regains his sight, scales fall from his eyes, and that he rises and was baptized. He receives the Spirit, and he's strengthened. This is the suggestion of, of, of a radical kind of 
interruption from the Lord that has taken place here. It kind of echoes the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. Again, this is something that's true of every believer and something that each of our stories echoes in some way. Saul has taken up, or better, has been taken up by the way of Jesus. So it's being described here in this passage. Paul also, in a unique way, has been called to suffer for Jesus' name. Jesus tells Ananias that Paul's got to learn what he must suffer for my name's sake. Again, we've said this before, that the Christian life is to take on the life of Christ. And in a lot of ways, what that means for us is to bear up under hardship that Jesus has for us and to do so in a way that honors Jesus. But the scriptures tell us that Paul had this unique calling, that he was to, he was to suffer for the name of Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. The idea here is that in the same way that Jesus' gospel spread through Jesus' death and resurrection, through Jesus' suffering, so Paul's suffering is going to lend itself to the advance of the gospel from here to the ends of the earth. One other detail that's, and, and by the way, I mean, we, we see this suffering taking place immediately in verses 20 through 25. I mean, immediately, Saul is met with opposition and attempts on Saul's life. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. This is the, the we, we've seen this play out multiple times in the story of the New Testament. The people of God being plotted against just as the Lord Jesus was plotted against. Just as Jesus promised, Saul begins to suffer for Christ's namesake. And there's a brilliant irony at play. This story opens with Saul as the afflictor, and he has, be, he has become the afflicted. And it's not lost on the people in this area. In verses 21 and 22, they're confounded, it says, at what's taken place. Saul is now fleeing for his life. The one previously doing the pursuing is now on the run. And here's another detail that I love about this story. Verse 25. It says that, the gates were being watched to see when Saul was going in and out of the city in order that they could take his life. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So, got some kind of large basket that can hold a man, and they're kind of shimmying down the rope to help Saul escape so that his life is not taken. You know where else in Scripture that takes place? You know who else is rescued by being lowered through a basket? King David, when he's being pursued by Saul. Isn't that something? When Saul is pursuing King David, he is lowered out of a window in a basket so that he can escape with his life. And now we see, really subtly, Luke includes these, this detail, that this is what has taken place. Saul has been totally, completely upended and inverted by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, the encourager from chapter 4, Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Saul joins the disciples, and they are very understandably nervous about this. Is he, is, he, is he going deep undercover? Is this a trap? But Barnabas reappears, and he vouches for Saul. He corroborates the story of Saul's vision. He talks about Saul's willingness to preach the gospel boldly. 
His willingness to suffer further legitimizes the change that's taken place. He's welcomed in. He's preaching boldly. And then I love this in verse 31. Remember how the story opened? We, we said that we're building to like this climactic encounter with the big bad. Like Saul, he's gathering the infinity stones. He's preparing to wage war against the church. He's going to ravage the church. He's full of zeal for the, for the Lord, and he's going to oppose Christ, and he's going to oppose the church. He's building momentum. He's going to wreck the church. Things are heating up. What's going to happen next? Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Isn't that unreal? It's like the, the chapter opens with this threat of this one who is going to oppose the work of Jesus in his church. And we get to verse 31 and it says, and the church multiplied. It persisted even still. This passage gives me just bucketfuls and bucketfuls and bucketfuls of hope. Doesn't it? Isn't this an amazing life-giving passage about what Jesus intends to do for his church and in some ways what Jesus has done for each and every one of us when he meets us with this upending, interrupting grace and completely inverts us and changes us and teaches us new ways? What, what I love about this passage, this super encouraging word for us, is that we're reminded of what Jesus promises in Matthew 16. Jesus will build his church. Jesus will build his church. We're going to spend a couple of weeks in that particular text when we get to Ridgewood. But this is a good reminder for us as we read this story that there is no obstacle Jesus will not overcome in the building up of his church. The church will be built, and there is no foe that he can't overcome. And it almost seems like Jesus delights in taking the foes and making them, like, like inverting it and putting him on his team. Jesus will build his church. His kingdom is a kingdom of glory and power and might, and his kingdom cannot, will not, ain't not, never not, going to not, never, ever, never not, going to ever not be. His church will multiply. It will be built up. There will be believers who are being comforted by the Holy Spirit who are walking in the fear of the Lord forever. Jesus will build his church. What comes of Saul after this story? I'm sure you know. Saul later changes his name to Paul, as in Paul the Apostle. He becomes the central character of the third part of Acts, a prolific evangelist, a church planter, a missionary, a theologian. He takes all of that zeal and he gives it over to the Lord Jesus. And he goes on to stand before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel just as Jesus said he would. You know what else he did? He wrote Romans, both Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, Philemon, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. Nearly 25% of the New Testament comes from the pen of this guy. And once again, we see that the means that the enemy attempts to use against Jesus, Jesus subverts and uses it for his own purposes. I mean, the man in, in, in the beginning of this chapter, breathing murderous threats, goes on to say this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. It'll be on the screen. Christ we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Isn't that amazing? The character that we see here in Acts chapter 9 becomes the man who says this, who pins a quarter of the New Testament. Doesn't that give us hope that Jesus' church will triumph? That there's no obstacle that Jesus doesn't delight in subverting for his own ends. But there's a second reason that this passage gives me hope. Jesus' church will triumph. He will build his church. And listen, he's going to do it through people we don't expect. He's going to do it through people that we don't expect. Think of Jesus' grace to use Saul. I mean, it, it took Barnabas, like, going to bat for Saul to say, like, no, 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 this is for real. Saul, of all people, approving of Stephen's murder. I mean, holding the killer's coats, Jesus chooses him to do the things that Paul does. What grace? The grace of God and Jesus. The grace of God that has been shown to each of us. The tenderness and mercy of God that's been shown to every believer, reconciled back to God. Any who would repent of their sin and believe on Christ can be forgiven. And Jesus' blood is so rich and strong and powerful that it has the ability to cover any and every offense. Jesus redeems us and he uses us and he surprises us with who he graciously calls into his service. Who he demands belong to his way by his grace. I think in a lot of ways this passage is a reminder that there is no one who is too far gone for the Lord Jesus to to redeem. There is no one who is beyond the scope of God's redemption. There is no one who is too far from God. There is not one who is too cut off from the blinding, deafening, remaking light of Jesus. And Jesus loves to show it. It struck me as I was reading this passage. Have you ever considered that one reason Jesus tells us to love our enemies is because we never know what God plans to do with them. One encouragement for us in this passage is just to keep sowing and sowing and sowing. In our evangelism, in our, in our efforts, as we pray for the lost, as we seek to try and share the gospel with the people in our circles who don't yet believe, it can be really easy to be intimidated and discouraged and disheartened. We have these hard evangelistic relationships antagonistic family members, antagonistic co-workers, whatever it may be. But this passage reminds us that God has a, a really powerful interrupting grace. I suspect that we'll be surprised at who God chooses to use along the way. And we'll be surprised at who God shows his grace to and who God remakes and deploys for the sake of his kingdom. I mean, personally for me, I have, I have distinct memories of my grandfather being baptized distinct memories of my grandfather being baptized. Like, my grandfather, is a, he's, he's born in Woodruff, and I hear that there was a, an old man that we went to church with who used to run around with my grandpa, and they would talk about how they would, they'd go drive around in their early Fords, and they'd go beat up boys from Fountain Inn and go beat up those boys from Greer and Duncan, and, you know, they were, they were bad stuff and greasers and all that. And my grandpa, he was really sweet to us, but he was a cuss, man. He was a mean old cuss when he got in his moods. But I remember the Lord Jesus... And his interrupting grace, doing something in Papa Tucker, that's only supernatural. I mean, I remember even as a boy seeing the Lord Jesus do something to my grandfather. 
He was in his 60s, 70s, whatever it was during that time. This passage reminds us that no one is beyond the scope of redemption. No one is, is too far from God for God to save. May we keep sowing and praying and sowing and praying and sowing and praying for those people that the Lord Jesus has put us around. Now I would imagine that there are some folks who are here tonight who maybe whenever you walk through the doors of a church, you ask, am I a fraud? Am, am I too sinful to be here? Is it, is it the case that everybody else in here has their stuff together, but me, I am the one who is unredeemable and unlovable? It's like, consider the story of Saul and see what Jesus has done for this man. And see and receive the hope that this gives to you. Believe on Christ and be saved, who, who gives us the grace to enter in, to be reconciled to the Father. If he did it for Saul, he can do it for you, friend. Believe on Jesus, whose blood is strong and able to cover every sin. If you're a Christian here tonight, one of the, the privileges that we have as a church family is to take the Lord's Supper. You'll see these two tables who are stationed here in my right and my left. Uh, the table on the left uh, um, does have gluten-free bread on it, by the way. But as we take of the Lord's Supper, we remember and look three directions and remember what Jesus has done for us. As we take of the Lord's Supper, we look backwards and we remember what Jesus did on the cross and how Jesus shed his blood for sinners in order that every soul who cast themselves on Christ could be forgiven, could have their, their guilt removed and their lives changed. We look backwards. As we take of the supper, we also look forwards. It reminds us that there's a feast that is yet to come and that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make all sad things untrue and he's going to inaugurate that with a meal. And these are the hors d'oeuvres of that meal that is yet to come. We look backward, we look forward, but we also look outward. We look outwards to our brothers and sisters, to the people with whom we share this meal. These folks who are also in need of the Lord's grace and kindness. And as we take of the supper, we're reminded that it is the Lord's grace and kindness that unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, a couple of moments, I'm, I'm going to pray. Um, and then after I pray, I'm going to read through our Lord's Supper liturgy. Um, and then after I read the Lord's Supper liturgy, uh, whenever you're ready, you pray and you kind of consider there in your seats. Whenever you're ready, you can come forward, and Aaron and Jim will be stationed at the different Lord's Supper tables to distribute the elements. You'll, you'll take them there and then go sit back down, and we'll take the elements all at once. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, you love us too much to not interrupt us and to not change us. We thank you for stories like the story of Saul and his conversion and his recruitment into the kingdom and, and, and your service, Lord Jesus. We pray for, for those who are in the room who are bearing up under difficult relationships with spouses with siblings, with parents, with coworkers, friends who want to give up in their efforts, who want to give up in their prayers. I pray that they would be stirred to continue by this story. But this reminder that you do indeed change lives. That is, that is not something that happened only in the New Testament. That is not something that happened only in bygone eras, but you are still, still doing that very thing by your Spirit. Pray for a kind of 
sanctified persistence in that. I pray for any folks who are in here tonight who feel overwhelmed and burdened by the reality of their sin, who feel as if what they've done, who they are, disqualifies them from your love and your grace. And I pray that in this passage they would, they would see what you do for Saul and would, and would find hope that you do that for them as well. And Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you build your church and that there is no obstacle that stand against, that can stand in the way. There's, there's no thing that you will not overcome and that there's an inevitability to this story that anchors us and gives us hope. And I pray that we would be uh, faithful to go about preaching the gospel and making you known, Lord Jesus. Go about investing in each other as a church family and doing so in the hope and confidence that your spirit is, is at work in us. And Lord Jesus, we do pray for, um, as we consider our move um, across town here in a couple of weeks, we pray, God, that we, we would be uh, like Paul, that we would, we would struggle. We would struggle with the, the power and the strength that is within us to see everyone be presented mature in Christ, and that you would mature us in Christ as a church. We thank you for the stories that are present in the book of Acts, and we pray that you would continue to nurture and um, uh, strengthen and encourage our church through this study. As we turn our eyes to the supper, Lord Jesus, we pray that your spirit would be uh, among us during this and that it would strengthen our faith as we look backwards, forwards, and outwards. We pray this in your name. Amen.